Well, McKinley Kitts, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, you toured the world. Yes. We actually never toured Asia, sadly. Um, Hopefully the guys make it, but I retired six months ago or so. Um, But we did Europe a few times. Made it as far as, like, we played Warsaw and Poland a couple times, which is nuts. Um, Vienna, and then, like, Prague. So that's pretty far, considering. Right. So you did Europe. UK. And UK. then the U.S. over and over and over and over. Right. Yeah. I hit 50 states uh, in last June. Wow. That was my, uh, my, my goal was to hit 50 states before I turned 30. And we had, I had like a week left. So mm. we were like, oh, God, what am I going to do? So we booked a flight to Anchorage right. for 24 hours, uh, not knowing that it was the summer solstice. So we had our like newborn baby, essentially, <laughs> and it never got dark. And did you tour 50 states or you've just been We've to 50 states? We've toured 49 states. Um, okay. Well, actually, okay, I guess 48, because Hawaii, we never played a show there, but I grew up between Hood River and Hawaii. Oh, did you? So that was easy. And then Alaska was, it's kind of out of the way. Like, bands go there for festivals, like, in the summer sometimes. And I kept asking our agent. I was like, I really want to play Alaska. I don't care if you make money. It's, like, my last date. Right. It never worked out. So when I had that week left before I was 30, we just did 24 hours in Anchorage. Hmm. And I also had never seen a moose, so that was a priority for me. Yeah. Is it pretty hard to just book gigs on the other side of the world? Well, we don't. We had a lot of infrastructure in place for us. So we signed with an agent when we were like 21 or 22. We hadn't. We didn't even have a band name yet. We mm-hmm. had. We were living in LA. Had just moved there, and we were recording demos with a lot more like synthesizers and kind of like this new alternative wave that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a manager who was just our friend from another band, and he sent our music to his buddy who was a booking agent. And he was like, yep, I'll sign him. So we didn't even have a name yet. <laughs> mm. But we had a booking agent kind of right out of the gates, which helped a lot. It kind of gave us a leg up for touring. So we got some pretty nice little tour looks right out of the out of the gates. Um, and then once we signed with a major label and all that stuff, they kind of set you up with you have an international agent, and then you kind of have all your areas covered. So all of our Europe tours were handled by an agent based out of London, and then all of our domestic stuff was handled by our Still a really good friend, um, and the band is still booked by him all these years later, uh, and he lives in New York. So if you wanted to do a show in Warsaw or Europe or whatever, you would just tell your international agent, and then he would kind of handle it? Or how did that work? It's less of a request thing and more of a necessity thing. So it's kind of like a complicated um, beast, but (laughs) they... When you go to Europe, for the, especially like the first times, you don't just go, because no one's going to go to your show. Right. So our first... UK shows were with an artist named Halsey, and we just got mm. really, I mean, they were insanely big shows and sold out way before we got added. So when we started, we had the same manager as Halsey, um, and so she took us on her US tour, which was amazing. Like a, That was like our first real big tour, which is nuts, because it was like every room sold out, like 2,500 to 3,500 people right. across the US. So that was a great intro. And then at the end of the tour, she's like, hey, I'm going to the UK, and I've already sold out these shows, and we have... Um, another artist opening, but there's a slot. Do you guys want to come? We're like, uh, absolutely. Mm. And I had never been to the UK or Europe. So it was like a perfect opportunity for us to kind of try to break there and also just, um, you know, see the rest of the world. Right. So we didn't even have an agent yet, but she's, since she invited us, we just got on the tour. Mm. And then after that, we, after we had an agent, we were, we basically get submitted by the agent. So there's like, they all have their massive email list of other agents. They'll be like, hey, I saw that Walk the Moon is going on tour. Would you be interested in taking Floor out? So we, you know, you get submitted for tons of tours all year round, and hopefully the band likes it or the agent. They kind of do a lot of trades. 
they'll mm. be like, hey, I know you booked this artist, so if you take this small artist, then I'll give you an opening slot on this tour, mm. kind of scratch my back, scratch yours. So we got our first Europe tour with a band called Walk the Moon. Um, they had that a big hit called uh, Shut Up and Dance. Mm. Um, so that was we started in Stockholm on that tour, and that was our first time in, in Europe. And we kind of cut down from Sweden into Poland, worked our way through kind of Eastern Europe, and then cut back over and ended in the U.K., so it's kind of like a and then after that as far as like headlining goes it's based around strategy it's like hey we have a record coming out um we need to go kind of show face in the uk so you'll go play like a couple like london shows a lot of it is more around kind of trying to reestablish a presence with industry people like you invite all the press out in the uk like you're not making money when you go to play like two or three shows and we did that a couple times we were taken to london and you're like, all right, we're going to play two or three shows in the UK, <laughs> which is crazy because, like, you're going so far. And, like, we had, like, 20 pieces of gear that you have to, like, check. It costs an exorbitant amount of money. But the label fronts all that, obviously. And then the goal is just to, like, show that you exist, remind people, and get industry people kind of on board for when record release comes out. Mm. And some bands break in other countries before they break in the U.S. It happens. Like, Kings of Leon were, like, selling more tickets in the U.K. and they're from the U.S. before they had their hits here. Right. And that's always the hope. Like, you can break somewhere. Um, and there's never really any way to know. There's a band called Rise Against um, that's big in the U.S. Like they do a couple thousand, but in Germany, <laughs> they're superstars, right? Like, like randomly, so they right. could, if they had to for the rest of their life, they could go play just like a German tour and like make a living doing only that. Yeah, like, they're so big that I think it was. Correct. I have to like fact check this, but I think my manager mentioned that <laughs> uh, Green Day was opening for them <laughs> in Germany. Because so because Rise Against is so big in Germany, right? So there's all these different markets and all these like kind of like micro scenes, and you can break in a lot of different ones. So you have to hit them all and hope that something sticks, right? Because if you have one song work in Japan or one song work in Spain, then that'll like make you a career there. Mm. So you kind of have to hit them all, even if you're playing to ten people in like Italy, which has happened. <laughs> you just kind of give it your best shot and hope that something sticks somewhere. And who who's kind of managing? Because like. As a band, you have the record label and then inside of, but your manager is not necessarily from the record label. And then you have all these entities like who who's kind of looking out for like the well-being of the band. No one's looking out for the well-being of the band. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's a joke. We actually had a really good relationship with our label Um, and we had a really unique circumstance where our buddy basically got us signed. Um, and which is pretty odd. We just kind of, he wasn't like a necessarily a real music manager. He just like was like, yeah, I'm going to help you guys. Hmm. And we got a record deal. And then pretty quickly after he was like, I don't think I want to work in music anymore. Like like, you were the only band he ever got signed. Yeah. Yeah. He, and he did it. Like he, we signed a major label record deal like for like a chunk of money and we were all like, Oh sick. And he's like, yeah, but I think I'm going to be an author, which is funny because now he has like, I'm pretty sure multiple New York times, bestselling (laughs) books. He's become a very successful author and TV screenwriter since. Um, but which isn't a big deal, but he was like, Hey, I think I'm going to do something else. And we were like, okay. And we had a really good relationship with the head of the label. I mean, he was like, I've got a guy who manages another band on our roster. I think he would be a good fit for you. So we basically met with a bunch of different managers. They flew out to wherever we were on tour, kind of like vetted a few different people. And we thought we made a decision, but we took one more lunch with the guy the label recommended and we loved him. So he, we signed with him. I mean, God, at this point it's been like, like seven years and he's still the band's manager. Hmm. Um, and so he kind of took the band from like, we, we basically were about to put our record out or had just put it out. And our older manager was like, I don't think I want to work in music. So we were kind of in limbo, but he jumped right in. We played Lollapalooza like right after the record came out and started touring. And he kind of coached us through 
how to do press, all this other stuff, along with all the label staff as well. I mean, the label does everything. So we have like in-house merch designers, in-house photo video, in-house um, PR, like everything. Like, it's a big label. So they had kind of every role filled. Obviously, right. you can use if you have friends that you think are really good videographers, which is what we did have. We had a lot of people do outside work, but the label has the infrastructure to basically fulfill every role. Hmm. So and then your manager exists outside of that, but still is in like constant communication with the label, obviously, right. to make sure that like releases are on schedule and all that. And then your booking agent is less involved with the label, but still it all kind of is relevant because mm-hmm. album release. Therefore, we have to do a tour right after. There's a lot. Of, it's all connected and it's kind of never stops. Right. And is it, so does it feel like you're working for the label or does it feel like the label's working for you or a bit of both? Hmm. That's a good question. I think that we had a particularly good relationship with our record label, especially for like the first like five years. Um, everyone got along well. It was really friendly. Everyone was just like, it was easy. So I felt like it was a, we kind of coexisted in a positive way. They said yes to things that we asked for, but we didn't ask for much. Right. I think a lot of bands kind of come out of the gates and are like, we want to shoot a $250,000 music video. Um, and then nobody watches the video and nobody streams the song and they get dropped by the label. It's like pretty standard. Like most bands don't get past their first album because huh. they spend a lot of money. Uh, we were pretty conservative and careful, like right out of the gates. We shot cheaper music videos. We are self-produced, which is a huge thing. So like production fees for making albums are really high. But our bass player, um, Dylan, who's also from Hood River, had become a really good uh, producer Mm -hmm. um, along with our singer who can produce all the synth stuff and songwriting. So we were making records like out of his bedroom, Mm -hmm. like major label records, but you wouldn't like, you would never have guessed where they came from. There's like a drum set in a bedroom. And then like another bedroom has a studio set up, but we were producing amazing sounding records. Did you guys film a music video there? We shot a live series uh, in Dylan's back house. um, Kind of like, and we probably shot music videos in some of the houses. We, we kind of made do with what we had. Right. We didn't. We didn't act like we were on a major label. Right. We were very DIY and like conscious of how much we were spending. Right. Because like it's their money, but you have to recoup it. So like if you spend half a million dollars and your album doesn't perform at all, and you only make fifty thousand on it, they're gonna look at the numbers and be like, okay, this doesn't make sense. Moving on. Right. Because they, you know, they're gonna sign twenty five artists and hope that a couple of them do really, really well to, to subsidize the rest. But if you're just a constant drain, it's probably not gonna work out. <laughs> So we were pretty conscious of that. And I think we really underspent compared to a lot of other artists, which worked out in our favor. Like we just released our, like a year ago, released our third major label album, which doesn't happen to a lot of bands without having a big radio hit. Right. Were you guys pretty on the same page within the band as far as being conservative like that? And Yeah. I don't think anybody was, I mean, there's, you know, there's times where like, okay, like technically our band is big enough to be on a bus, but then you look at the numbers and it's like, okay, it's $1,500 a day for operating costs for a bus. You don't have any privacy. You don't get to take showers as often. So we would kind of just look at that and be practical and be like, okay, well, we can, for less money than that, we can get four hotel rooms every night and have a nice sprinter to be driving in. Right. And that way, like I did a lot of the driving and I wanted to stop and like try out cool food and like go some tourist spots. I mean, I never lost that kind of lust for traveling the whole time we were everywhere. So it was nice to have our own control. If you're on a bus, you can't just like pull into like city streets and check things out. Right. <laughs> you're like stuck in a schedule. You're at truck stops and all that. So I wanted to have a little more freedom. So we chose to have a van a lot of the time, even when we were making enough money to have been in a bus. Mm. And I think a lot of bands, like, like as soon as they get signed, they're like, oh yeah, we need the bus. We need the crew. We need all this stuff. But it wasn't necessary in a lot, a lot of the time. So did you live your own version of the kind of rock star lifestyle? Because that's because the rock star lifestyle, you imagine a bus, but yeah, I mean, we still had 
I mean, I had an amazing time. Like, living in L.A. with all these other alternative artists coming up. Like, I didn't go to college, and that was my college experience. Like, 21 to 25, we had a lot of our friends were getting successful. There was money. There was It was a really good time in L.A. Um, so I think more personally, like, in our own lives, yes, we got to experience the rock star lifestyle. But work was work. Like, when you're on tour, like, we took it seriously. And, like, right. aside from, like, drinking, having a good time, like, you know, we showed up on stage and did our job. Right. And we, you know, we were breaking down most of our own gear and setting up our own light show. We, you know, we'd get there at like 1 p.m., put on work gloves and build a light show. Right. Then take half an hour to recoup and then take a shower and go play a show. You're looking cooler than with work gloves, but right. <laughs> it was, it was very much a job and everyone was really serious about pulling their weight. Interesting. And when did you guys move down to LA? So I think we were, it would have been, I was 21. So we started touring right out of high school when I was, like, 18 mm. um, under a different band name. And so when we, did you guys get together? Dylan and I started playing music when I was, like, 15. Okay. So that would have been, like, 2007 or something in high school. Right. We had a music class together and started writing songs. And then we started touring when we were, like, 18. Didn't really have any headway. We just kind of, like, were learning, like, the ropes. And then we we realized that Portland wasn't really a great market for us. We were a little on the pop side, like always, like we wanted to write songs that like the general public would be into. Mm. We weren't super indie and Portland felt like a hard market for us. So we just went straight to LA, which is the right call for us. Right. There's been like some awesome bands to break out of Portland, but for us, it wasn't the right spot, especially right. in like <clears throat> at that time, if we'd waited a couple of years, Portland kind of like exploded in population and was a little more diverse with the music, but right. it wasn't the right time for us. And we felt like we needed to go somewhere where like, where it was all happening and you guys were just in tune enough with the music scene to know that yeah and like we had been going to la to write songs and record since we were like 19 so that we knew people down there and we knew that we needed to be there okay um so it wasn't like we didn't just like pack up a car and move without knowing anyone we had some connections it still took a little while but once we were there and writing songs um especially like the new songs for floor we signed a record deal within like less than a year so it, was, it happened pretty quick once we started releasing, like, our new music. Hmm. And were you guys living together down there? Did you... It was a... Yeah. So when I moved to Pasadena outside of L.A., it was me, Zach, our singer, and our drummer, Kyle. And then our bass player and producer, Dylan, lived, like, a mile down the road in Pasadena as well. So everyone was pretty close. And so, outside of the music stuff, what did you think of L.A.? I really enjoyed it. It was a good place to be, especially back then. It was a good spon to be man. It was like there was so much energy so much so much creativity um it was pretty inspiring. It's like you're watching your friends like their trials and tribulations like people are getting rich, people are having a hard time it's It was a really inspiring place to be and i I only look back on it fondly, really to be honest um there was a time obviously where I realized it was time to come back to Oregon and kind of not settle down but at least like have my home base around my parents and my siblings and when I, when I started my own family, I wouldn't want to raise my kid down there, but not because anything against the city. I just have resources in, in Oregon that far outweigh what there is in LA for me. Right. So outside, or I guess inside of music, once you got down there, you released a record and like, were you just spending most of your time every day working on making music or like? Oh, we were partying a lot, <laughs> or at least I was. Um, we were touring when we like kind of, it was, a, it was a funny thing, though. So we signed a record deal, and we had never had a record deal. So we, we were like, okay, we signed a deal, and now we'll get big. And then we didn't do anything for a year, uh, which is like a very valuable life lesson for me and for us, where we waited a year for the label to do something big, and they didn't do anything. 
And then mm. we kind of had this realization, like, they go with you. So you have to, they don't want to sign bands and artists. They're like, what should we do next? Right. They want artists and especially like front men to have this initiative and these ideas, and then they can back you up and support you. Right. I mean, ba- these labels aren't trying to like build bands like f- from scratch and like, l- like manufacture this stuff. It's easier to sell an authentic project. So we realized after a year of like just spending the money we got and like hanging out that they weren't going to do it for us, which is good. That was, like, I mean, if, why would they? Right. Like if it, it would just all be fake and the industry wouldn't exist if it was just like manufacturing artists. Sure. So we took the initiative um, to start writing more music and trying to start putting it out. And the first song we put out ended up like after we got signed, it was kind of like a protest song about how we thought the label was not <laughs> supporting us, which is ironic because in hindsight, we just weren't doing anything. Right. And they were waiting for the moment to strike. Right. And we put a song out. Um, was it obvious that that was the message? Like, do you think they I got think it? So. There's a couple, like, there's a bridge part where he's like talking about like walking away from a deal kind of. Um, the song was called Still Standing Still. It was about how we'd just been kind of like floating around waiting. Right. So we wrote the song and put it out. And then <laughs> it immediately went like the, vi- the Spotify viral top 50. And right. then the next day, all of the label like website and like headers and all their socials switched over to the song. <laughs> And we're like, oh, okay. So, like, they can't make it happen on their own. We have to put in this work, and then they'll follow along. And we don't have the resources to, like, you know, hit millions of people with socials or, with, or like, have this connection with Spotify to, like, make sure we're getting the right playlists. But if we lead the way with the right songs and this initiative, then they can back us up in a way that no, like, even, like, an indie label can't do. Right. They have a lot of resources, but we have to give them something to work with. So we, after we had that realization, that song kind of, like, and like pushed them to, like, start working then then like the rest kind of took off we started writing more songs pursuing tours more heavily and then the rest kind of went from there mm. but it was a good lesson and we we told ourselves like let's not ever forget this that we just wasted a year of our career and it actually ended up not being a problem because we came back so strong and like our career peaked years later it wasn't like a lot of people will sign that deal flounder and nothing ever happens but that was just the beginning but it was a good lesson and it was crucial to be like okay you can't take a year off and do nothing when you're still in like the beginning stages of building a band, you don't have fans that are like eagerly awaiting your next like release. You don't have anything. You have to win those fans over and win the label over. Right. Which so is you, pretty crucial. So you said that you were partying a lot. What, what kind of, what did the party scene look like in those early days in LA? <laughs> oh man, it was awesome. There was like a, you know, like a, a kind of a new wave of like, I guess people call them hipster bars, but like there's just like the bar scene was really lively, like in Hollywood. And it was just a good place to be. There was like a lot of young musicians, a lot of young artists, and people just kind of, like, building things together. And it was all networking-based. Like, you're meeting other artists that are writing amazing songs at these bars and talking about music and kind of... And hope and sometimes it pans out and you get a cool tour because you met the right guy and got along really well. Um, but it was just very lively. And I always... Like, like I said earlier, I, I didn't go to college. So, for me, it was a really good opportunity to experience just, like, going out more. Like, when I was 18 to 20, I lived in Hood River and I just, like, worked... Right. I didn't go out. I mean, I also wasn't 21, but even then, like, I didn't even have a lot of friends. Everyone went to college, and I stayed here. Right. And it was hard. Like, I was like, what am I doing? I, like, didn't take sweatpants off for, like, six months one winter, I think. And I just, like, didn't know. I didn't really have a lot of purpose. So to be inspired by other people that are hungry and ambitious down there was pretty key for me. And that energy isn't, like, exclusive to L.A. Like, you have to find those pockets anywhere. Every city or town is going to have a group of people that are ambitious and chasing that down. And I found it in Hood River, and I've it, it exists in Portland as well. But for us, at being 21, it seemed like the obvious thing. I was like, let's go to a, a really big city with a ton of people making art, and we'll find that community. Right. Which we did. 
But now, as I've gotten older, I realize that you can find that anywhere. You just have to know where to look, and you have to hang out with and meet the right people. With that said, there's people, there's super famous people down there. Did you ever have a moment where you're like, wait, this is real life? I'm talking to so-and-so, or like, oh, I had a like lot of is those. this a movie? I had a lot of those moments. Um, I'm trying to think of which ones are like appropriate and not weird. <laughs> um, I think a good one probably is that our friend had been dating Hilary Duff, mm. and he showed her our music, and she got really into our band. So she came to a couple shows, which is kind of crazy. Just like by herself or with a friend. Right. Which is, and then at one show we played in San Diego at the House of Blues and her manager or something called House of Blues. They're like, hey, uh, my client Hillary Duff is coming to the floor show. Can she get a private table? And we had hung out there a couple times and it, so it wasn't as crazy, but the venue was hilarious. They like made a whole fuss about Hillary Duff coming to House of Blues. So they like set her up with like a table and we're like all like nervous and freaking out. Um, <laughs> And they threw a whole fit about something that they thought was such a big deal. But I think it was an important lesson to, like, normalize people. Right. Like, no one wants to be treated in, like, a weird, freaky way. I had a... When I was, like, 18, we won a contest, and we opened for Panic! at the Disco. This is a pretty bad story, but it's pretty funny. Uh, (laughs) And we were opening for them in Madison, Wisconsin. And Panic! the Disco, for me, in, like, middle school and high school, was, like, my favorite band. So, for me, it was a huge deal. And... I was so like enamored that I got to be around the singer, Brendan Urie. And it, <laughs> at one point, I was like walking past all the other van, or, uh, band trailers to our own. And I saw Brendan like talking to his security guard in his trailer. And I, I kind of like watched him for a little bit, which definitely sounds creepy in hindsight. But I was like, oh my God, it's Brendan Urie. He's like 10 feet away from me. Right. And then like 30 seconds into like checking out what was going on, he sends his security out to tell me to stop being creepy. <laughs> I was so mortified. It was brutal. I was like, oh. But, again, good lesson. I was like, okay. In hindsight, if you're an artist or a celebrity and there's a strange little boy outside the window watching you, I'd probably send my security out, too. Right. So just like learning how to normalize it. But there's, I mean, I can't even, like, think about specific ones. Because I try to, like, just be cool. And that was, like, a valuable lesson is, like, not being a weirdo. Right. Um, but there's a lot of interactions you, with big artists. I imagine that someone who's famous and experiences weirdos all the time would respond well to a normal person. Like, I think you get a lot more respect if you just treat them like a normal person. Right. <laughs> um, but th- I think they'll always also keep you like at an arm's length just because, I mean, especially a lot of those artists got big when they were like 16 sometimes. So right. all they've ever known is people being weird or like manipulating them to try to get something right girls trying to date them for the wrong reasons like this is so many variables they have to look out for i don't envy that like i feel bad for people that have to like question the motivations of people that want to spend time with them did you ever feel like you had that moment where people like someone was no i I don't think so we i never got to like the band got pretty big but i was just the guy who played guitar and also, like, that was never my vibe. So, and I, I mean, maybe, like, girls at some point. But there, I never questioned, like, the motivations of my relationships or friendships. I feel like I have a pretty good nose for that. But it never really happened. I think I'm pretty authentic and people respond to that. So I, I only had really, like, healthy, good experiences throughout the whole career. And, but did people ever start to recognize you on the street in places or our, like our singer with the band would get recognized i i think there's probably a couple instances where i'd be like at a starbucks someone's like do you play guitar in floor 
And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. But our singer has, like, crazy long red hair. Right. And it's, like, very distinct looking. Right. And it was always, we always go to Starbucks. That's, like, the start of our day. Because, like, all over the country, we're in, like, random Midwest towns. The one consistent thing is Starbucks. Sure. And the guys are just, like, have to have their morning cold brew. And, like, over and over at Starbucks, was they'd be like, are you Zach from Flora? <laughs> and I'd be standing there. I'd be standing there. <laughs> I'm like, I'm also in Flora. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually enjoyed not having it be a problem. Like, there was – but Zach definitely gets recognized a lot more, um, which is cool, though. Like, you kind of we, – we always stayed really humble and, and mellow about it. But it was definitely a cool moments when people would recognize the band when we were together. Right. Um, it felt special. It was nice. I mean, just being from Hood River and having big dreams when you're 15 – just being recognized for like writing songs like ten years later is pretty surreal. Did Hood River feel different once you kind of had some success and came back? I think I appreciated it a lot more than I ever did, um, and like a lot of things that I liked about the city, kind of Hood River came into as far as like the food scene and the coffee scene catching up, and like a lot of and like there's like really cool cocktail bars now. It's like a lot of things that I loved in LA and would love in Portland, but you know Hood River was always a little sleepier, but it's caught up a bit in that way. So there's more access to, like, cool food and diverse food, which I really like. But I think I just appreciate it more. Like, I spend more time, like, looking at the trees and the sky and just being like, nice, how lucky am I? Right. Which is probably just, like, a side effect of getting older and, like, trying to be more in the moment. Because I think anywhere I go, I have that same reaction. I step outside. I'm, like, trying to practice gratitude. Because mm. um, especially, especially in music, I spent so much time just pushing forward and saying, what's next, what's next, what's next? I feel like I missed a lot of that, so I try to be more conscious now. What do you feel? What are the distractions that pull you out of the moment? Work stuff. I've always been like, my my role in the band was more like, not not like a manager, but I was definitely like kind of like a logistics leader, mm. like hotel booking, driving, how we were going to tackle the schedule, mm. all the press stuff. Just kind of like I was like the point contact with management with a label about how to just kind of like run things, even though I wasn't like the singer. But that's important for a band. There's, like, multiple roles. Right. Like, sometimes the guy writing the best songs isn't the guy who's going to be able to, like, be the easiest conversation to have about logistics. Sure. And that's fine. Like, how many people are like, oh, yeah, I'm a brilliant songwriter and singer and guitar player, and also I can talk for two hours about how we're going to schedule our drive. Right. They shouldn't have to worry about that. But because my role musically felt, to me, pretty, like, low pressure, it allowed me to fill all these roles that were more practical. Mm. Um, so I was always I was always thinking about work and what was next. Like I'd walk off stage after a show and already be planning about loadout and <laughs> and where we're gonna be the next day in the next city. And and just like work stuff in general, trying to figure out strategy. And I still have that same problem with my current work. I just am so focused on what's next and how to build things that I get lost in it a little bit. So I'm tr- now that I have a daughter, I really try to like enjoy the moment a little more and just like, even if it's for like five or ten minutes a day, I'm like stop worrying about what's next. And how you're going to scale this and build this. Just because I get obsessive about work. I'm like, how do I enjoy these 10 minutes with my daughter reading her a book? Right. Um, and I wish I had done a better job of that when I was younger. Because there's so many like memorable stories and instances that I don't even think I could remember. <laughs> um, just because I was so focused on being bigger, being better, whatever was next. Right. So how, how did your music change throughout the course of your career like like i guess you personally or the band however you want to take the question well it's like a pretty like linear progression there actually so when we were in high school it was just like guitar pop rock it's like the bands we liked we just kind of tried to write songs that were similar 
And then we kind of were at the tail end of that wave because obviously this, the bands we loved, we loved when we were like 14 and 15. And then we were trying to write songs like them when we were 18, 19. Mm. So, you know, the music industry kind of moves pretty quickly. It, when you're younger, it doesn't seem like you, you have no context. We're living in Hood River. We're like, how would we possibly know that pop rock <laughs> in 2011 or 2012 was not going to be what it was in 2006? Right. So as we started touring, we're like, oh, maybe this the music that we're writing right now isn't as relevant as what we thought it was four years ago which makes sense because it still happens it happens even faster now like there's a trendy sound and six months later it might be outdated right so when we moved to la zach was experimenting a lot more with synthesizers and kind of like in, what indie pop was which is like you know early churches and uh, mgmt a lot of bands like that mm-hmm. and he was just kind of writing demos and the like a janky little laptop and then we're like these are really catchy melodies and so he started writing new songs with those synth sounds and everyone we showed was like, this is really, really good. And that was pretty cool. Because like before we would like show our friends our songs, we're like, nice. And all of a sudden we had people being reacting in a totally different way. And we were like, oh, what? maybe our songs before were fine, but these are clearly different. Hmm. We had way more interest. People were serious. And all of a sudden we had emails from like, there was a, there was a, uh, basically like a chart system called Hype Machine, which would have been probably peaked in like 2015, if I had to guess. And this is before like a day of Spotify playlisting. So there was there was essentially hundreds or thousands of music blogs. And Hype Machine was a way to keep track of how many blogs were reposting your song. So when we started putting out our demos under floor, all these blogs started posting them. Um, and then all of a sudden you charted on Hype Machine, like top 10. And back then, 2015 or 14, whenever it was, if you charted in the top 10 on Hype Machine, every single label would email your band. It was pretty funny. And that was actually part of our strategy. We were like, we were told when we were a little younger, like, oh, you need to get in Hype Machine. But the music we were writing was not, it wasn't cool. It wasn't trendy. So we knew it wasn't going to happen. But when we wrote these new songs, they were cool and they were trendy. So we put them on Hype Machine. We charted and we literally had, I think we counted them. Every single major label had emailed us within two days of charting. And it was pretty crazy. And we didn't get a record deal out of that, ironically. But we ended up signing with um, Field by Ramen, which is under Atlantic, which is under Warner. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we got on the radar of every every single A&R of every label by charting on this hype machine thing. Right. So we knew this, the music was working. And then we started touring with it. And we we're like, well, shit, we all play guitar. And this is all like synth stuff. <laughs> so how does that work? And there was definitely some growing pains to figure out how to play the songs live. Because, you know, there's a genre called bedroom pop. And that's what it was. We were just like making music on computers. Right. And writing songs over the all, over these like synth tracks. But then we're all guitar players and drummers, and we're like, okay, well, how do we make this work? So we added more parts to the songs, just kind of like made them up to make sense for live. Mm-hmm. And then going into the next album, we knew, like, okay, like we're good guitar players, we're a good band. Let's make sure that that translates into the next record. So we added a lot more guitar, a lot more live band. And we had the same feedback from people. They're like, hey, I really like your EP or your album, but when I see you live, it's really, really sick. And it would be cool if your record sounded a little more like what you guys sound like, because we're a really good live band. Right. So we took that to heart and made sure we wrote songs that were more guitar based. There's still plenty of synths because, I mean, our singer is a great synth player and he wrote so many melodies that way. But we were more conscious of like integrating live instrumentation into the new records. Um, And then it made more sense. Like what you hear on the record sounds more like what we're playing live. Hmm. That was a pretty intentional shift. So becoming more band oriented and then kind of like leaning on everyone's strengths rather than just just the songwriting, I guess. Hmm. So yeah, just like an evolution, kind of, and then ironically ended up kind of being like how we wrote music when we were sixteen. We came back to like getting in a room and writing songs together with guitars in our hands, rather than like the Zach nerding out in a computer. 
Um, so we kind of came back to how it all started, which is how we wrote our last record. Because hmm, the live shows kind of, it tends to be easier to make a song that does well at a live show when you make it kind of live of together. Yeah, so we there, we weren't writing songs and guitars sitting down in a room together. It was just like Zach with headphones in a hotel room, like making little beeps and boops on his laptop. Right. So we were intentional about shifting back to writing songs like a band. And it tra- obviously it translated to the song sounding huge live and making a lot of sense. Hmm. That's interesting. So yeah. you... Because I've I've noticed that that band some bands oftentimes the bands I like most live aren't the ones I like most and I never understood why but you're saying that they actually might be different songs yeah and like and the way you play them would be different and I think some bands do it intentionally like obviously jam bands or like that genre is like they want it to be more free forming and like different live we were always a lot more strict than that we wanted like we played to a metronome every single song there was no like improvisation it was very much about the songwriting and playing like you actually play to a metronome yes. every time there's a metronome we never want to play a song without a metronome going in our ear like you would have a ear like a tiny little earpiece well we had big earpieces on in each ear and ear monitors and we had a computer sending us a so as soon, you press play on a laptop and you have an eight count like beep 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 beep, beep right. song starts so for the hour and 20 minutes we play on a headline set, you have a metronome going for every single song the entire time. Mm. So we were really, really tight. <laughs> so that's how, and you start and stop at the metronome at the beginning of each song, and it's, that's how you know when it starts? It's tied to like a whole track system. So like if there's like an extra synth part that we can't play live, then that's built into the metronome as well. So there's like, I mean, the, we have- like, Every beat is, pl- you're telling me the entire set is set is to, planned. Yes, exactly. I mean, down to the lighting. I mean, our entire light and should... the spacing between songs. Like, if sometimes you're gonna we say would something... even have transition programs, so there was no, there was very little like flexibility. You can't mess up. If you miss a part, you can't like the band can't catch up. You have to stop playing for a second and jump in where you need to jump in. There was zero room for like messing around or messing up. That's gnarly. Yeah, and the lighting show is fed by our metronome. So basically, there's like a click track going into another computer backstage that then runs through DMX to an entire lighting rig. Right. which is programmed to match every song. So that's why you have like the lights hit at the right time when the whole band does a big part because everything is pre-programmed and pre-made. We had a, a lighting designer come in for rehearsals and they would basically sit there and watch us play the song and they would build a show with the lights from scratch to every single beat of every single song. Right. Yeah, and they can't do it to the record because there might be cymbal hits that aren't on the record. So he'd watch the show and build it as we go from these songs that we're playing. So on a given tour... Um... I guess a tour would be like multiple locations, right? Yeah, typically you, like a month is kind of standard. You would play the same exact set, maybe tweak it a little bit if we, you had we, we to. Could re, but... We could reorganize songs. It was pretty hard to like introduce new songs. Deleting them is easy, obviously. You just literally get rid of it. Okay. And rearranging could be easy, but sometimes you have like a transition. Like a, we'd write a new musical part to tie two songs together. Right. It'd be pretty hard to like reverse that. Right. Because <laughs> what if there's like a key change going to the next song? So... But yeah, so we pretty much would have the same set, but you could add or subtract a couple songs. And then you guys owned all of the light or the essential lighting equipment. So we would, there's a couple companies out of LA that we would use and a couple friends. They would send you out. Like it's the technology has changed a lot since I was in high school. Basically, like one little laptop with like an interface can program like, you know, 25 light fixtures all from, from that. Today. So, yes, right. currently. Back in the day, you'd have to have like a guy doing it, but now it's, it's like, it's like a show in a box is what they call it. So you're able to, if you send out a simple audio signal, which is called time code, to the lighting laptop, right. and that'll run an entire show. So you don't need a guy running lights. We literally would set up the whole show, 
plug the laptop in and it would follow us as we played. And there, ha- there would be no guy running lights. It's literally like a whole custom light show that's beautiful with movers and flashes and all kinds of stuff. You can even automate when the haze comes in if you want like a hazier spot. Right. We were pretty modern. Like we, we were intentional about the gear upgrades. We had our own audio console. We never used the venue's audio stuff. We brought all of our own console, our own in-ears. Everything was very much like, so it sounded really tight and really consistent in every venue. Huh. And that was important to us. I remember going to shows growing up. I was like, oh, this band sucks. Like, the right. band didn't suck. This wasn't a priority for a lot of those bands to sound good. They just didn't care. Right. And, you know, funny enough, 10 years later, most of those bands are gone, except for the ones that put attention into the lighting show being good and the audio sounding good. So that was something we kind of kept in mind the whole time. Like, how do we make right. this as good as we can make it? Right. You were looking at the show as your product, exactly. not just the music. Yeah. And those bands that, like, have done well and not sounded great, obviously. There's plenty of bands that just aren't great live, but their songs are so good, it doesn't matter. But we wanted it to all work together. Mm. and not really compromise in any way. So did you ever have any big mess-ups where you got off time and then you're like, oh, now we got to try and... like Not that, but we've had some pretty bad ones. My favorite one is we opened for Paramore in Florida, which is a big deal because, again, Paramore is one of my favorite bands. It's probably 6,000 people, like a massive seated auditorium. And we walked out to start in the computer crash that runs our metronome. <laughs> But we were already out, like, about to start. So, like, we couldn't walk out. I mean, we in hindsight, we probably could have just walked off and kind of, like, waited a couple minutes. Right. But I just, just, I just did stand-up, essentially, for, like, two and a half minutes as the computer rebooted. Stand-up comedy? But yeah, I just, like, made some bad jokes <laughs> in front of, like, 6,000 people. But there was a reason we couldn't walk off stage. Like, we were set. Like, it was, like, it would have been too weird, and we didn't have enough time to, like, reset the whole thing. So, right. while he rebooted the computer to, like, get the metronome going, I just talked. Uh, it was pretty rough. <laughs> and uh, and you're opening, so do you have to be conscious of the fact that if you play the same length set, now you're going to run into the headliner? Or yeah, and you can, you have you can skip a song there? pretty easily. So I think we cut a song based off of that. Sure. Um, but it was it was pretty gnarly. Who, who's quarterbacking those calls? Um, <laughs> we are, Man, in hindsight, it, again, it was just like so intuitive. I think everyone was really in touch about what needed to happen. Gotcha. Um. There was never a moment where we were, like, bickering on stage about how to do something. We just knew. And everyone in the band is really good at just, like, here's what has to be done. Let's do it. Right. Like, I think some people will probably panic in that situation. But we're just, like, you just put your head down and figure it out. Um, we had a show, a headline show in New York, the biggest one we've done headlining there. And our, one of our techs unplugged the whole lighting rig, which, like, then triggered the metronome to stop. <laughs> but we finished the song without click. And then on his way to fix it, he then kicked one of our guitar setups and unplugged our pedal board. <laughs> Love him to death. Um, so he had to go back like three times to fix separate issues because they got... So things happen, but then you watch videos like Instagram tags from fans and you don't really know. It feels like the end of the world like in your head because like, you're so isolated with his in-ears. Like, you don't hear the crowd. I don't hear anything aside from like the metronome and my own mix. You literally don't hear the crowd. You like, are fully isolated. Like, you literally have no sense of of the space you're in because you i mean i have an, an iphone app there where i can dial in my i have 28 channels of audio and on my iphone i choose if i want more metronome more hi-hat more or less guitar so i create my own little world living there so i can play as tight as possible whoa so because of that though you feel so vulnerable like if you mess up in your ear it sounds like you made a huge like catastrophic error right but then you watch a video back of that part and you can't even tell because the whole mix sounds so big and so full you have the whole band kind of like carrying you but when your ears, it's like you're your own worst critic. So it feels like the end of the world. It really does. But <laughs> when you watch videos back, like, oh, actually, we look like really confident. We look like we crushed it. 
but it's really isolating being on stage sometimes, especially when you do it that way, where you don't hear anything aside from what you're doing. Do you practice a lot like that, like with the headphones and everything? Less than I should. Like I was that? definitely the loosest in the band by far, um, <laughs> but I could play to a click. I didn't mess up very often. Like I'm a I'm a good live guitar player. Why do you um, say you were the loosest in the band? Because the band is really good. Okay. Like like our drummer is is very very tight. Dylan's like. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Surgically tight. Okay. He, you know, he's a producer. Yeah. And our singer is just like a force. I was definitely like musically, like the least inclined. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't good at things growing up. Like I wasn't a natural. Like when I started playing guitar, I wasn't like, oh, this makes sense. It was mm. like, oh, this feels so uncomfortable, but I want to do it. Mm. So that one again, important life lesson because it's carried me to where I am now with everything else I've done. I I wasn't a natural talent. Same with sports. I wasn't a good soccer player. I didn't it didn't make sense to me like some people see the field they know what to do with it I was like I felt lost I wasn't the fastest I wasn't the strongest I wasn't that big but I worked really hard mm. um, that was in hind- and again looking back I'm almost glad that that's how it was because I've built so much since then and that's because I wasn't just good at things and there's a lot, I think a lot of kids are naturals at things and it gets harder when they get older they don't get the same pats on the back for like learning how to kick flip quickly it's more about like consistency and being able to be reliable and stick with something and build it. And for me, that's what guitar was. That's what it taught me. It's like, hey, you're not very good at this. You can't just master it. You right. never will master it, but you can be good enough if you work hard enough. What was motivating you so much to pursue music and work hard? I, I like writing songs. So like everything else is kind of a vessel for that. Like when I, I was writing poetry in middle school and people would be like, that's stupid. I'm like, yeah, it does sound kind of stupid to be writing poems, doesn't it? I was like, I better learn how to play guitar. So my poems are songs. Right. So I started learning how to play guitar. Interesting. It was always about the songwriting for me, um, which I, the one thing I was good at was writing lyrics and writing songs. But the music side was a lot sloppier. So I got better. And by, you know, by... By the time I was 25, playing guitar on floor, I was a good guitar player. But there's always there's, there's kids out there that'll start learn like play guitar hero, pick up a guitar, and without a doubt, they'd be better than me within a year of trying. Because some people are just good at stuff and they pick it up. <laughs> right. I've seen it. I've seen. I had a buddy who was like, I don't think I want to play guitar. And like within a year, he was like playing like Clapton stuff, and I was like, I never could do that. <laughs> or like there's like casual guys all over Hood River that can play like some of the best John Mayer guitar parts. Like not going to happen for me, but I made a career out of it. That's I worked really super hard. interesting. And it's like something I try to be pretty transparent about because a lot of people feel like it's a big barrier to entry for music or for anything, really. But like if you have a skill, then you can like in mind with songwriting and just being really, really hardworking, then you can make something work. Right. So through all this hard work, what do you like? What do you what do you attribute your success to other than because other than hard work? (laughs) Uh, I mean, the band, the band is really good. The songs were good. Everyone was really on it and they didn't quit and they we didn't fight a lot like we just were kind of got along and did what needed to be done Mm. a lot of bands break up and that's like they're their own worst enemy like they can't i mean look at oasis or like uh, essentially any band they either die or they break up right (laughs) this is kind of how it goes um and we didn't quit and we got along which is like the hardest part i think i mean it wasn't hard for us luckily but i think it's hard for a lot of bands they just have a lot of drama they can't put their egos aside and but our priority was building the band and we knew that it wasn't about like our individuality or our egos. So just like if, if you're a good band and you can not break up, there's, t- t- there's totally opportunity out there for you to be a big band. Sure. Just, you got to stay together. There's a lot of wasted talent because they can't figure out how to work with other people. Hmm. And you can't do it alone. Like no one can write all the songs, do the promotion tour, do it all alone. This is not really whether your team is your label or your management or your band. You have to have a team. You have to have other people 
helping you build something great. Right. There's very few people that are so determinedly driven that they can like think of a concept, execute it, and follow it th- follow through with it to have it be great. They right. usually need help along the way. There's a few people like that. I mean, I don't know if you want to consider Steve Jobs one, but like sure. the, the, or there's certain musicians that have managed to do it all themselves. But it's very rare, and right. the odds are you're going to need help. What do you? What instilled this work ethic in you? Oh, therapy time. <laughs> Talking to my therapist about this right now. Um, <laughs> I think that. I was embarrassed growing up that I wasn't good at things. I remember like, you know, my dad was my soccer coach and I would be benched. Mm. Um, like he wasn't like, Oh, he's my son. He has to play. Yeah. He'd sit me on the bench and I'd be like, can I go in? He's like, no, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny looking back, but also like that really like affected me. Yeah. And I was like, well, God, if, and like, I remember sophomore year, I didn't make varsity in soccer and I was so frustrated. I was like, my friends all made it cause they were good. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I can't just be good at things, then I guess I just have to work harder. And I have this like a crippling fear of failure or being what I would call a loser. But mm. in my, I don't put that in other people. It's just for myself. Right. I want to win. And it's not necessarily financial or physical or anything like that. It's just, I, and I can't even explain what it is, but I, I have to win right. with the thing I'm trying. And I know that what I have working for me is that I can put 12 hours in a day into one thing and make progress. Mm. And some people can do the same amount of work in an hour, but they might give up like after a couple months, but I'll spend years with my 10 hours, 12 hours a day on something in order to get where I need to be. Um, so I think just a fear of being seen or feeling like I'm bad at something. I will force myself to figure it out and be good enough. Hmm. And it applies to everything in my life. Like I have a marketing business and I do photo video. I haven't been doing it for long. I started three years ago, but we built the business to have like a big client list all over the country. And again, it's because I'm obsessive and I will not quit until it's right. Right. And again, I wasn't like a natural photographer even. Like when I started doing that, I didn't really get it. But I was watching YouTube videos for 10 hours a day to try to understand like the inner workings of a camera and what makes things look nice. And it was the same exact process as it as it was for me to learn how to be better at guitar. Sure. Just like dogged approach to figuring it out. Right. And what drew you to poetry? Uh, probably just childhood stuff, like classic family drama and tumultuous raising. And I got dragged all over the world by my parents, like different places, and was living in random places and just going through weird stuff. I had a, just like a, I think that I didn't know how to express that. And I listened to, I had like an Eminem CD, not a lot of music, but I had like one CD. And I felt like that was the one thing I could relate to. And I was like, well, I guess I want to do the one thing that makes me feel a little better, mm. which is making my feelings rhyme. Interesting. So you were originally, you were kind of like your poetry was originally inspired by music. Yeah, I would. I mean, I never tried to rap, ironically, but I, I mean, that's what inspired me when I was younger. Like the only CD I had was was the Eminem show, I think. So I listened to that a lot, and I, I wrote poetry. that I, I, I imagined that it was supposed to be rapping, but I never really tried to rap. I just wrote the words. Right. And then when my, my mom actually was the one who introduced me to, like, more pop rock, she bought me, like, an All-American Reject CD and a Taking Back Sunday CD when I was, like, in middle school. Hmm. And then with LimeWire, I kind of discovered, like, Fall Out Boy and all the scene music that really inspired me. And that's when, like, the guitar stuff kind of came in. Right. Because, like, I didn't know how to make beats, and I didn't have a computer. Like, I grew up without internet. Like, I didn't have access to, like, a studio or anything like that. But a guitar, there used to be a pawn shop in Hood River, and my dad bought me my first bass for, like, 80 bucks. And that was my gateway to learn how to write songs. 
So back to when you were in LA and you guys had this year and then you finally released an album or some songs, kind of got some traction. What did you, did the did the label respond after that and they kind of picked you guys up or did you guys just keep it at full throttle and Oh, they they were backing it really hard. And like the the de- the debut record was like really good timing for us. It actually came out and didn't really sell. And we were like, okay, well, we'll keep working at it. And then all of a sudden, we started getting more syncs. Like, more TV shows were putting the songs in. There was a little bit of money there. And then Spotify started kind of, like, ramping up. We are like, oh, that's interesting. And the next thing you know, like, the album's been streamed, like, over 100 million times. Like, the album kind of took off and had a life of its own. And all of a sudden, we had more people coming to the shows. Some people that saw us opening for other bands. Some people that just heard us on Spotify. And were like, oh, this band is sick. I want to go to their show. And it was crazy, like... All of a sudden, we're selling out shows. Our first headline tour, it was like a couple months after the album came out. And we put the tickets on sale. New York sold out in two minutes. And we're like, whoa. So we upgraded the venue. Again, that one sold out in four minutes. Mm. And we like tripled the size of the venue that we upgraded from. Right. It was nuts. Like We're like, oh, let's try to do 200 people in New York. Sold out. Uh, upgraded to 700, I think. Sold out in five minutes. Huh. It was crazy. We're like, oh, my God. There's so many people that want to watch this band. So when you say upgraded, you mean you literally just change the venue yes exactly and a lot of bands will do that they'll play it conservative or like they'll be like we're adding a second night we're adding a third night we're adding a fourth night they always had those nights held they're just like being conservative to like build hype huh so and we've done the same thing like, but so someone bought a ticket for one location but then you it changed just, it to that a gets new automatically lo- changed because the ticket like the ticket provider or whatever kind of transitions it and it's all most of it's digital anyways right but yeah so like most bands will have a backup venue or additional nights if they're planning on it like they they have a feeling it'll sell out right um like most recently on the floor headline tour that i wasn't doing because i was with my baby we went to new york to watch the show though and they sold out the first night really quick added a second night at the same venue they didn't announce it at the same time but they knew it was gonna sell out second night sold out as well they, they left it at two <laughs> but most bands will kind of have it ready to go if they know it's gonna go sure we didn't expect that first New York venue, that 200 ever, to sell out so fast, but we kind of scrambled to get it covered. So you said that Spotify in the early days was looking really promising. Spotify from... was everything for us, and it was kind of a funny timing because we had a lot of like older musician friends that had been touring since like the early 2000s that hated Spotify. They're like, I used to sell, I mean, you know, think about it. Before streaming, even if you only had 10,000 fans, which is you know not that many, but it's enough. If 10,000 fans buy your $10 CD, like, it's actually like you're making a living. So when you were doing more hard goods and streaming wasn't really a factor, you could make a living from a pretty small but engaged fan base. Spotify kind of took that power away in some ways because those 10,000 people are probably just going to stream your album and then maybe 1,000 of them will buy the CD. Right. So I think a lot of older generation artists lost access to making a living because the spotify streams are pretty like insignificant mm. unless you're streaming millions or tens of millions of times right which is what happened to us mm. so we were streaming so much it didn't matter that you get paid 0.0045 cents a stream if right. you're streaming 150 million times that's real money right and it's actually less overhead you're not like there's no labor <laughs> there's no cds being like wrapped and shipped out it's just it's just income flow which the label was mostly getting but still the point is in the early days of Spotify, we were getting like insane playlist uh, placements and an opportunity for a whole new audience. So while a lot of people were like complaining, it opened us up to tens of thousands and millions of people. Right. People that would just be listening to like study, just chill study vibes. 
Right. And a song would come on, and they would identify with it, and then they would come to a show, they would buy a T-shirt, and they would come to 10 more shows over the next five years. It got us thousands of fans because of these algorithms that were putting our music into people they thought might like it. And it worked. It's also less saturated back then. Things have changed a lot. Mm. There was a time where there wasn't like an impossible amount of music coming out every day. Now it's like something like 10,000 songs come out every Friday or something. It's like impossible. There's so much music. But in the earlier days, there was less going on. It was less overwhelming. And you could cut through the noise a lot easier. Was, was there actually less music or was there less music being uploaded to Spotify? There was less. I mean, obviously things were scaled up. There's always going to be more. Right. But there was a lot less music being uploaded and there was right. more opportunity for playlists. It's incredibly competitive now. I, I mean, again, I'm out, kind of out of the music industry now, but it was a lot easier. And what do you mean by playlists? Like who's so, playlists? like New Music Friday or like basically Spotify editorial playlists. Gotcha. Because they have their own. Right. Like New Music Friday, Rap Caviar, um, Indie Pop. Study, like you yeah, said. Yeah, well, like, they, and they have some, like sometimes they're silly names, like Sun Vibes. Right. But all those things, people like will search that or like they know they like the chill study vibes. Yeah. So you have access to a bunch of people that are doing their homework and they hear a song they identify with. Mm. And that was crucial for us. So we were, and there was a direct translation. Some people will stream really well, and that's that. We were streaming well, and people were buying tickets, and then they were buying merch. Mm. So there was, you know, for us, it built us a career. So it was hard to be like, yeah, streaming services are evil because they don't pay enough. I was like, we were watching it in real time make us a career. Right. So what do you think connected someone who streamed your song to go buy a ticket? How did you make that? I mean, honestly, conversion? I don't know what to say other than the music was good enough. Mm. And like that's when like whenever young people ask me, they're like, how do I make a music career? I'm like, you better write really good songs, <laughs> write 500 songs and keep 10, the best 10. And then even then, there's no way to know if people are going to connect with it. That's I mean, you're at the mercy of, of the of the public, which is why music is so scary. Like you putting people will spend years creating a batch of songs and put it out and like 100 people listen to it right. or 50 million people listen to it. It's it's so fickle and the timing is so tricky and there's so many variables that you don't have control of. But, I mean, fate was on our side, especially for the early years where we were just getting the playlist. People were, they just liked the music. They heard it. They liked it. They bought a ticket. They came. They saw us. They bought a shirt. It was just, it just happened like that because the songs were right. They were the right songs at the right time that helped. It was, it was definitely a lot of college kids that were, like, having a hard time in school. And, it, and that, we had that story kind of told to us a lot. A lot of kids were like, hey, you got me through my first couple of years of college listening to music when I did my homework when I was overwhelmed. So clearly there was, like... Somehow that was extra relatable, which is funny because no one in our band went to college. Mm. <laughs> but college kids were like really identifying with it. And older. We, I remember when we started touring, we didn't know who our fans would be because we didn't really have the data for it. And we had, it was like so diverse. Like we would have 50 year olds just like holding each other, kissing during like our slow songs. And I was like, where did you come from? <laughs> and like they don't interact online. We don't know they exist. Like they're not on Twitter or on Instagram. Right. But they're coming to shows. We call them like phantom fans. Like they'll come, buy a shirt, and go home. We'll never see them. We'll never meet them. But they just like love this band's songs. Mm -hmm. It was really funny. And then there'd be like some sixteen-year-olds, but it was actually a lot older. So when we were touring, when we were twenty-one. It was funny because we'd be playing to people that were mostly older than us. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a fun experience. But it's just the songs. Like that's still what it comes down to. Which is why people will complain about the music industry, about industry plants, and like all the barriers to entry. But if you write the right song or the right songs, it'll work. It'll get out there. It's just people often don't because it's really hard and it's really competitive. And it, yeah, it does seem like you guys found this groove where you started, you connected with 
modernity or like you figured out what people wanted today yeah and it wasn't even intentional i mean we didn't especially in the first record we didn't like sit down and be like what do people want to hear that was never a conversation right. it was like what are we feeling and our singer was like had like some crazy relationship stuff going on and was like going through a lot of stuff and just pouring his heart out into these songs that were so authentic and so beautiful right and people just fully fucking bought into it right. in the most beautiful way because it wasn't it wasn't intentional it wasn't strategic to we didn't write lyrics based off of like what are people going to be into he was just pouring his heart out into this bedroom pop album that tons and tons of people just really connected with that's got to be crazy to put something so intimate out there publicly yeah and then you know there's hundreds of tattoos of those lyrics all over people's bodies all over the world right it's, it's insane to see how people connected with it and sometimes again like you lose sight of it because you're so bought into your own, like, I'm so tired on tour, blah, blah, blah. There's so many things to be stressed about. But then you meet some kids that are like, I have this lyric that saved my life tattooed on my around my wrist. Like, there's so many moments like that. They're insane. Which I finally got to see firsthand because when Flora played the last New York headline show, I went as a fan. I, I went with my uh, my wife and we went to the show and it was awesome. And I got to be in the crowd for the first time. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, people love this band. Right. It was crazy. You know, it was a sold-out show, shirts everywhere, tattoos everywhere. It's, like, so diverse. There was, like, no limitation on who these people were, and they got to be their most authentic selves at the show. Hmm. And we always had fans tweeting this, not even at us, we just see it, and they always said, home is a floor show. And I, I didn't even fully understand it till I got to be the fan in the crowd. Interesting. And they knew every word to every song for an hour and a half, and I was like, whoa, this is so powerful. And... I know I had to move on with my life because I had, a, I had a baby and a lot of other things going on. But it was, I'm so glad that I got to see the impact this band has on people. And I was, and I don't think I ever would have seen it if I just was on stage the whole time. Because like I said, with your in-ear monitors and you're just in your own world. But I got to be part of everyone else's world and they, the way they perceive Floor. And it was awesome. I was so happy for the guys. And happy for myself, knowing that for the last... 10 years or whatever people had been having that experience over and over and i didn't even know i didn't get it was that the greatest reward yeah for sure i mean i got to do a lot of cool things but it's not about me and never was it's about how the music makes people feel and clearly it makes them feel really valued and special and safe and it was just like their little bubble they got to be in for a couple hours every time they went to a show and it was really really moving and i got to be in their bubble with them for the first time so from a musical perspective, what, what, what did you guys do well in terms of the songs you wrote? Because it sounds like you, you were authentic and genuine, and that made people feel understood. But what, what was your musical strong suit? Just good melodies, making it approachable. Singer has a really like soft, beautiful voice that I think people felt safe with. I don't even know how to like, we never like broke it down and evaluated it. We just kind of like kept writing songs and moving forward. I'm sure like in the way that I listen to other bands that I like and I'm like, oh, here's what they're doing right. I, I know for a fact that there's probably a ton of other young artists that were listening to our record being like, I love how they did this, but we didn't do that. Right. <laughs> we didn't break it down. We just kind of made it. Right. Um, which is more special anyways. Like I, I wouldn't want it to become like a full like, all right, we have a bunch of writers in the room and a bunch of producers. We need a song that sounds like this. Right. That doesn't sound like something that I want to listen to or create. So we just, I mean, like Zach was just made something special and it was a lightning in a bottle moment over those couple of years. Right. So you mentioned a few times that you recently left the band. 
I did. I, uh, I retired. I had a baby February of 2022, and then I went on tour two weeks after she was born for two months, and it was rough. Um, <laughs> I got COVID while I was gone. She got COVID while I was gone. <laughs> so like, I, you know, I have a sick baby. She's like six weeks old with COVID at home. Yeah. I'm just like in Austin, Texas, just like having a meltdown. I thought that I could do it, and I was planning on doing it, and I couldn't. And it was a hard realization because I'd only done one thing my whole life. You know, we like, we have like some family businesses and stuff, but I had only, my priority was always that. And I kind of realized like, okay, things have changed and I have a baby <laughs> and I have a partner and I have to, and she, and my partner was so tough. Like she never complained about me being gone or like was supporting me being on the road, but I came home and like within a week, I was like, this is really hard, <laughs> like being a, like a parent to like a newborn. And you've been doing this for so long without me. Like, how are you even doing that? That's insane. <laughs> and the grace that she showed and not even like giving me shit. Like, that's crazy. Right. She was just like, and, I, and obviously she was struggling, but she wasn't even like, she didn't want to like rain on my parade on the road and like make things harder, right. which is wild. I'm like, how do you have like the self-restraint? Because I would have been complaining the whole time. Right. <laughs> I don't have like a... <laughs> I'm not as pure as she is. And I just would have been like, this is awful. Come home. Right. And she just supported me. But then I was like, well, how do I support her back? And I think the, the only answer was to figure out how to rebuild my life in a different way at home. Hmm. Um, so I kind of, I took a long, I didn't formally retire until like a month ago or something, but I told the guys that I wasn't going on the next tour and was kind of phasing out over the last, it's been a long time. It's been almost a year actually, I think since I started phasing out. And did they find a drop-in replacement? <laughs> we actually, there was a kid that was playing guitar for another band we toured with. Who was he, They kind of hired him, and he ripped. Uh, okay. His name's Val. He's a kid that lives in Nashville. And he was very fun, very cool and gregarious, but also like 10 times a guitar player I am. So like <laughs> when they said who they were getting, I was like, yes, because he was like my first choice. I was like, who can I picture like playing my parts, but better? <laughs> and it's this kid, Val. He's like a lot of fun. People love him. And he is a, such a good guitar player. So, and that's when I, he played with them in that New York show I went to. Mm. So not only did I get to watch a floor show, I got to watch it sound better than if I was playing. Like, Cause he's so good. He's like playing my parts, but like, like with so much, <laughs> so much soul and so tight and so effortless. Like for me, I was always like, all right, how do I play this next part? I was always looking down at my guitar to make sure I didn't mess up. He's like smiling out to the crowd like a Greek god, just shredding. And I'm like, God, I can't imagine not looking at my guitar neck the whole time. Uh, he's just so confident. Like I said, some people are just born to play guitar. And I wanted to be, but I wasn't. And I still did it for a long time, but some people just get it, and he gets it. And so I got to watch someone who gets it play guitar in the band, which is awesome. It was beautiful. So are they are they just digging deep and full yeah, throttle? I going? Think, I think, I mean, definitely giving each other space just because I have a lot going on, and they're in L.A. Um, I'm getting married in June, so they'll be up here for that so we can touch base. But I think they're just writing and kind of prepping for the next thing. We're going out on tour in like June with uh, Andrew McMahon, some pretty big shows. Hopefully I'll try to catch one. Um, but yeah, I think they're just writing and doing their thing. And I've been very busy up here. So kind of focusing on my world and my family. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your digital advertising business. Yeah. So um, towards the end of the band or my time with the band over the last couple of years, I guess, I had been kind of falling in love with the creative process for the visual stuff. Um, we had a lot of friends making our videos and taking our photos, and I was getting more and more interested in that. Um, so 
you know, that kind of ties into what I do now and having access to those guys as well. Like I have like so many awesome, talented friends that I can pull on for resources for what I do. And then I got hired as a wrist model for like a really high budget watch campaign. Um, I know, <laughs> I know I'm like mediocre, handsome from like the neck up, but I have great wrists. Um, so I shot like a, see those things. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a great wrist. It's a funny story. So basically there was this big campaign being shot up in Canada and my buddy was producing it and he texted me and he's like, Hey, do you have any headshots you can send up all of these like real models we submitted to the client? They don't like them. They think they look too much like models. Mm. I was like, Hey, that's insulting. <laughs> I look too authentic. Um, but yeah, sure. So I sent some photos and it was for a big company called IWC, which is like a luxury watch brand. Like the watches are ranged from like 10,000 to 50,000 and they selected me, which is super random, but they wanted a guy who looked like he's from the PNW. And, like, the day they texted me, I was, like, doing some lumber projects. So, like, I, like, sent a photo, and they're, like, oh, he's perfect. Because <laughs> I just, like, right. looked good but not too good. <laughs> right. Like a scrappy beard. So they flew me up to Canada, and we spent four days shooting watches, like, on the private float planes and the rainforests and, like, cool old cars. And it was an amazing experience. But I didn't fall in love with the modeling side because it was just my wrist mostly. But I fell in love with the creative process and the way they were framing these photos and telling a story with products. Mm. And I was, was like, wow, I can't believe how much story you can tell with a photo of a watch on a guy's wrist based on like what you, the clothes you put him in, where you put him, and the context of what's going on. Right. And that blew my mind. I was like, I had never been around like commercial photography. And I was like, I can't believe you can tell these stories without words even. Just like you, you, you can draw your own conclusions to what is going on in this photo based on what he's wearing, what he's doing. Right. So when I came home, I kind of like got into cameras and I was like, I really want to do this. But my priority immediately was more commercial stuff. I had been doing creative stuff and art for my whole life. And I love the idea of telling a story with a product and the environment. So I kind of just jumped immediately into trying to get into product photography, but like with the storytelling element. So like how would you integrate I mean, I started in cannabis, actually. I was like, okay, so how would I integrate this pre-roll into a little story? So I would build little sets with, like, cool old maps or whatever I had handy or borrow a cool car and, like, kind of set things up like that and kind of got better. And then things took off after I started getting some bigger clients the last, like, even six months. So now we have five liquor clients, six wine brands, a watch brand and a couple luxury home goods brands, which we're doing pretty much fully in house. So we're producing like 20 to 35 vertical video ads a month. Mm. Vertical um, video? Yeah. So I do almost exclusively social oriented advertising. Right. So Instagram reel format. So if you see like a vertical Instagram, if you're going through Instagram stories and you see an ad for any of the brands I work for, the odds are it's one of my ads that I created up right. here in Oregon. Right. So less photo than I originally anticipated, but as the industry shifted towards reels and video, I was like, oh, I got to adapt. And right. I'm glad I did because now it's like 95% video, 5% photo. Right. Um, but I still use all the guys that I used to like tour with and knew from the music industry. They edit my videos or color my videos and are still super involved. Oh, interesting. So now I still have my creative outlet. It's perfect. Like and this, the same joy that I got from writing a song or like seeing someone connect with that is when someone watches one of my videos or one of my ads and reacts to it in a positive way. Right. It's a similar feeling. Except it's actually like a little safer because you're not like, you don't have to like worry about the emotional reaction of like someone like liking it. I have less invest. It's 
the highs are a little less high, but the lows are a lot less low. Right. It's like more of a kind of like a middle of the road, like pleasant buzz I've got going on. Right. So what's been the hardest part about building this business? I think scaling has been really hard. So my whole thing was I could do more content faster than anyone else for less money, hmm. which was great. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and then other clients, they're like, oh, it's sick. This guy can produce. You like, can sleep less than everyone else. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Which is always how I've been. And then just recently, I'm like, okay, this might not be sustainable. So I've been subbing out some more of the work. But I started being more serious about getting better, too. Because, like, the social stuff was good. But I was like, I want to shoot real ads. Right. Especially, like, still social oriented. Because I want, I think everyone's on their phone. And I think the future of advertising is still going to be vertical and on your phone. Mm. Um, a lot of cinematographers hate me for saying that but i mean you have to like you can look at the data of how people consume content and it's almost entirely on their phones yeah which is fine so i i have i haven't done a horizontal video or photo in like six months <laughs> unless it's for like a like a website i guess for a photo but so i got more serious about upgrading my gear and not just being the fastest and cheapest guy but also like being a, i was losing some work to people that had like legit studios and were doing like really highly produced stuff I was like, well, I can, and as I am, I was like, I doggedly was like, I can do that. Right. So I got a studio and I invested tens of thousands of dollars in higher end gear and I got the work. So I have a lot more high budget campaigns going on this spring and summer. Um, so what, what are the, what's the difference in value that you can provide with a quote unquote high end studio versus what you had before? So there's like something called like an, what I would call like an ego shoot. And so clients sometimes just need to see that you have a bigger camera or a bigger space. I know it's hilarious. I believe it. Um, so funny. part of the battle is just like making sure your rig looks impressive and is like, Oh, this is why we're spending. So if someone's spending $75,000 on like a rebrand shoot and you show up with your little handheld camera, even if your deliverable is great, we have this immediate, they're going to, you're going to, they're going to feel fear. Right. <laughs> they're going to see a little camera and they're going to be like, Oh God, like how, why are we paying 75,000 for this? So I have a bigger cinema rig that is for the, it's not just to impress people, but also like has like a better bit rate and better color science and a lot of other things. <laughs> right. But I could get pretty close with a smaller camera <laughs> Sure. to be honest. Um, like if you gave, like I'm pr I feel pretty confident that even if you set me up with like an iPhone and the right studio and the right lighting, I could get something pretty close with the iPhone. Sure. Like I feel pretty confident it's... now with any camera. They all do the same thing. It's like recording software, like logic or pro tools. It's all, they all do the same thing. So like, what do you feel comfortable with and what do you know you can deliver? So part of it is needing bigger, better stuff to make sure clients are feeling happy. And part of it is like, having more access to better color science and just kind of better frame rates and better quality. Mm. And do you have anyone that's working with you in house or my partner, uh, my baby mama, uh, went to school for graphic design and is a really accomplished graphic designer. She's done a lot of big stuff. Um, and she actually had been doing photos for social clients even before we met or sorry, before we started dating. So she kind of helped me learn a lot more about cameras and I took it and run, took it and ran with it. And she still is my partner in the business. Gotcha. So she's full time with me, um, and we sub out a fair amount of stuff from other people as well. But I still do like eighty percent of the video photo, photo work, mm. and then she'll she'll retouch all the photos. She's like a way better editor, like photo editor than I am. So we kind of like spend all of our time together building this business and raising the daughter. Right. And are you still trying to figure out how to scale, or did you already solve that problem? Uh, still working on it currently. I have to bring me back in six months and see where I'm at. 
um, things really took off recently as far as like getting higher budget commercial stuff. So mm. I'm bringing on more crew. Like I've hired like a director of photography, editor, colorist, a bunch of other people. But I'm still like in an odd position trying to decide whether I want to like actually hire someone full time mm. and who that would be. Right. Like there's pros and cons to where we live. There's a lot of talent, but the pool is just so much smaller. Right. Like if I was in LA, there'd be literally 10,000 kids that'll come work for 500 bucks a day and be ecstatic about it. Right. Like I pay well to people I sub out, but it's just not that many people. Right. Like until they're like at that sweet spot of being young enough to like go into the woods and rough it for a day to shoot. But the, the, the talented ones are often on the road or doing a bigger projects. So you have to find the right person. Um, but I definitely need the help. I'm a little little overwhelmed. So it's just hard to find the right people yeah, to scale. At least like locally. I mean, like right. even if we were in Portland, it'd be easier. But it's like I can't like I would be too afraid to like make the commitment. It was like, hey, move from Portland to Hood River and work for me full time. It's like a, it's like a scary proposition to like meddle with someone's life like that. Right. And as for now, I'm making it work. So what are you what are you looking for in these in an employee? I need someone that's an exact duplicate of me but much nicer. Mm. And what, like your skills, your uh, wrist? Mo- or... Motivation is more, is more important to me. There's so many skilled people, and it's the same way I felt about music. There's so many talented guys that never get out of their house or out of their bedroom because right. they don't have that, that hunger and that ambition. So I would rather have someone who's mediocre skilled but wants it so bad because right. they're the ones that you can teach and you can mold and you can build things together rather than just trying to like channel their, their unbridled talent. I will always choose the person that just wants it so bad because right. I'm that guy. Right. And I know the value of, and obviously there's exceptions also where people are supremely talented and still have that absolute hunger, but those guys are going to be making a million dollars a year and they're doing like high end commercial stuff, obviously. Right. But finding a sweet spot of someone young who wants it so bad that I can teach is kind of where I would want to go with it. Does that tend to be a pretty hard trait to find? I mean, I wasn't, hungry when i was younger i mean until like when i was 18 and 19 i was just kind of floating around i didn't like get my ambition until i was in my early 20s when i really started getting after things and i also like you have to be mindful of like not everyone is going to be that way so like you can't project that in someone and be like i need you to be this this like pit bull who won't quit on something like you, you can't tell someone to do that they have to just have it right and i don't even know how to, i don't even know how to step that out to be honest Right. Like, how do you know if someone is like that? Right. So there's still a lot I'm figuring out on my end while not trying to grind my gears too much. So are you, are you like, posting, doing job postings oh, no, and stuff? not at all. Just, like, word of mouth. Word people. of mouth. And, like, I found, like, there's a DP, the director of photography that I hire for a few projects out of Portland. I just found him through Instagram. Right. Actually, originally, I bought something from him on Craigslist. <laughs> he was like, check out my work. I checked it out. He's really good. So I've hired him for, like, several projects. Gotcha. He's actually shooting my wedding in June, even. There you go. Yeah. So they exist. It's just like, it can be hard to find the right people. Right. And um, it's like the only, like, the only real con of living in Hood River for me is just, again, small pool. Lots of talent, lots of really cool people. It's just simply not that many people. What is your take on the music scene or the, the artist's um, culture or lack thereof in Hood River? So <laughs> this is something I always try to... I feel bad saying, because I remember growing up like, oh, do you know so-and-so? He's a local blues player. I was like, no, I have no idea who that is. Right. I was never part of the Hood River music scene. Right. We we left, and we built something, and we you know we played one show in Hood River in our entire career at the sure. River City. And it was like my last show I ever played, just so like, it was awesome. 
but I was never like a, a jam guy. Like I don't play blues. I don't play bluegrass. And so the Hood River music scene for me didn't really exist. We kind of exported what we had to somewhere else. Right. And I know it exists, but I've never been a part of it. So I don't know any like the local legends. Like I don't know anything about it. Mm. So to, um, to be totally honest, I just don't have an answer for that. Right. And it's not like it's not, it's not snobby. I just literally just was doing my own thing. And I don't know about it. And like I know they're all talented. Like I'll see like a, a trio playing at a winery. And I'm like, damn, these guys rip. But it's just not my world. Do we, you... we were trying to build it like build something very specific that was supposed to be all over the world. It was. We never jammed or just like hung out. Right. It was like very intentional. So, what do you connect with on a uh, social level with people in Hood River these I days? I mean, so many good friends. Um, I think there's a really good energy of like not, I mean, I need to work on it, but people not prioritizing their work too much and being able to have a good time, especially in the summers. I mean, I'm kind of an odd and like an uh, odd man out here because I don't do any of the sports. Like, I don't ski or snowboard, windsurf. I don't do any of the things that this town is famous for. You play soccer, though, right? I do play. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> played in quite a few years. Um, but just the environment, the natural beauty. I mean, the proximity to Portland's like, I, I fly out a fair amount for work stuff. And, like, you know, some 45 minutes from PDX. It's like one of the easiest airports to use, like, in the country. Like, it's pretty perfect. Yep. Um, and my family is here, which is important to me. Like right. we live on a compound with my mom, my dad, my brother, his kid, my sister, and her kids. Oh wow! Yeah, it's everyone, and a couple acres. And then you know we have—I didn't even mention this—but I opened a bar um, like almost two years ago downtown. So we have other businesses that we kind of need to keep an eye on. Like we're firmly entrenched here. Yeah, the common house. So was that your concept? That's my brother and I and his wife. Okay. Um, How old's your brother? He is nine years older than me, so he's thirty-nine. Okay. And then my uh, my partner also is involved in a lot of the, like, she does, like, some of the scheduling and stuff like that. And then my brother's wife does all the wine buying. and But my brother does the bulk of the day-to-day -day for, like, beer buying and build-outs. Gotcha. So him and I, like, stripped the space, cut all the concrete to, like, reroute all the plumbing and just kind of, like, updated the space and opened up in June of 2021, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. You're coming up on two years. Yeah, what was, what was the uh, motivation there? That space has struggled for a long time. I think that, like, restaurants have had a hard time in there. I mean, also, like, people think of Hood River sometimes, like, being kind of like Aspen or something, but it's not. Like, it's the winters are really, really slow. Right. And people aren't big spenders in the same way they are in Aspen. People right. aren't, like, flying here from New York to go skiing. That's not... There's it's not, not an airport. Or it, I guess there is an airport, to be fair, <laughs> but there's no jets landing. Yeah. I mean, there, there could be someday, but we're not there yet. And so I think restaurants can have a really hard time here in the winter with a, like, with a couple of rare exceptions of like newer spots that are really, really crushing it. Right. So we had a couple of restaurants struggle in the space. We own the building, and there was a couple of restaurants that struggled in there. And we felt like it was outdated. Like after the last tenant, it was kind of toasted. Like it was, it was dirty. There were some electrical issues, a lot of plumbing issues. Right. So my brother and I were like, let's just like <clears throat> fix the space and set it up. And we'll run like a kind of beer, wine, and cider bar out of here and a tap house. And if we decide we want to open a restaurant at some point, we can do that. So we updated the kitchen, got everything, like, dialed and ready to go. Gotcha. And we have a couple of people, like, operating out of the commercial kitchen. Like, Grasslands Barbecue is a local business. It's really great. They yep. do some of their sausage stuff in there. And they have a local, like, charcuterie provider doing some, uh, like, charcuterie board assembly in there. But the space is ready for whatever's next. And it's actually been doing great as a bar. Right. But the end goal would probably be to have, like, reintroduce, like, some real food service out of there. Because we have an awesome big commercial kitchen. Some real food service, you said? Yeah, like a, re a restaurant oh, or like even a like proper. proper. Just like actually use the awesome kitchen that we have. Right, because it's, it's super low 
occupancy right now in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, and the kitchen's big too. Like, you, someone could run like a like a forty table restaurant in there, no problem. With as far as like the kitchen's size. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of ideas floating around, but it's been doing well just by itself, keeping right. it simple and low maintenance. Yeah, sounds like you need more work to do, so maybe you should run a 40-table restaurant. <laughs> My wife's going to kill me. <laughs> I, I definitely have a problem with, like, taking on new things, but I'm just, like, I'm excited about a lot of things, and not in the way that I'll just, like, get worked up and then move on. Like, I want to build things, and, like, that's what makes me happy. Um, and now they don't have the band, I have more bandwidth to be just pursuing new ideas and opening new businesses, and that's, that is what makes me happy. I like my family time, but I like it's like exercising my brain and trying to think of new concepts and problem solve and open new things. And I think it's important to figure out at some point in your life how to like spend your days to make you feel the most fulfilled. And mine is doing a few hours of a few different things, a few different businesses. And then when I have to, the obsessive 10-hour stretches in the studio. Right. But just trying to do a bunch of things and play guitar every once in a while still. But just trying to that is what makes me feel happy is building things in that way and i don't think that's gonna go away so now that you have a daughter do you think about things that you want to preserve or change in the local community for with her in mind and her growing up oh man that's a hard question i mean i've just like been having like constant anxiety about like sending her to school eventually and like Mm. i don't want to be like a bubble family and like closed off and homeschooler but I mean, I can't help but feel, like, constant paranoia about, like, the state of, like, public schools and violence in the country. But not even, like, from a political standpoint, just, like, objectively, I don't feel super good about, like, my kid being in public school, because how could you? Mm-hmm. So I wrestle with that. But as far as the community goes, I mean, I think whatever is a great place to grow up. I think it's a lot different than the 90s when I grew up here. Right. Um, but there's still a lot of positives, and it's a beautiful place to be, and it's pretty safe. But... I don't know. I'm not there yet, I guess. Yeah. Like, I think she's still such a little munchkin and she spends all of her time at home that <laughs> I, I focus on the environment that I can control. Right. Um, and that's a conversation I've been having with friends where like some people are world fixers and that's like their priority, like mm-hmm. is, is saving the world or their community. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm still like focused on what can I do to provide for my family and my small circle and make sure that everyone's comfortable and taken care of. So I spend a lot of energy making sure that the people that are most important to me are safe and accounted for, whether that's financial or emotional, whatever it is. I want to build the best possible world for my my little circle. And then hopefully one day when the resources allow, expand upon that and work on the community. My dad was a community guy. You know, he built like hundreds of houses in this town and they're all like sold for below market value because his priority and what he the mark he wanted to leave was putting people that needed homes in homes. So, you know, whether it was nurses or young school teachers, that was his priority, and it worked. Like, there was a huge influx of young people in this town from the years that he built houses, from, like, 2005 to 2018. And then he he's retired, and there's a lot less. And now, all of a sudden, it's not to say he's responsible for not being realistic, but young people can't move to this town anymore. Right. It's just straight up not on the table, unless you have, like, insane family resources. And that was his mark. He wanted to put young people in this town to help build the community, and it worked. Like, look how much fresh blood came into this town over the last 15 years. Right. A lot of young, motivated people with good ideas. So when the time arises, and I feel like it's time for me to, like, expand upon my circle, I think my priority would also be to try to make this town more livable and more accessible for the people that need it. Mm. 
which is probably gonna I, I, I always said i wouldn't end up being a contractor but maybe it'll be helping housing developments that make sense for lower income families yeah well, we'll, I, we'll see i think that's a good place to end it but it sounds like you're a builder you just <laughs> you just like to build yes whatever, whatever it is i'll build it and, and we need more of whatever your dad did with building a bunch of house low income I, housing i agree maybe i'll get pull him out of retirement <laughs> cool man well thanks so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it thanks for having me mm-hmm.